Hello everyone and welcome. This is Molly Rowan Leach and I'm your host for the ongoing telecouncil series, Restorative Justice on the Rise, co-sponsored by the Peace Alliance. For more information about our upcoming guests for this weekly free series, please go to dopeace.us. That's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S. You can also find over three dozen archives of all of our conversations in the two seasons that we've been doing this telecouncil series. We hope to see you at an upcoming council and welcome you to this archive from February 14th, 2013, featuring the extraordinary Therese Bartholomew, who is the director of the film The Final Gift. It's a documentary that tells the story of the terrible loss of her brother Steve 10 years ago and her journey in um, becoming an advocate for restorative justice. She's also the author of The Coffee Shop God and I invite you to go to her website for the film and for her restorative justice initiative at thefinalgiftfilm.com. Thank you and enjoy this archive with Therese Bartholomew. Welcome, everybody, from wherever you're calling in or Skyping in from. This is your host, Molly Rowan Leach, of the Peace Alliance's ongoing series, Restorative Justice on the Rise. This is a free telecouncil series that started last year, so it's in its second season. And we've had amazing conversations with almost four dozen pioneers in the field of restorative justice, social healing, and peace building. And it's just a, a wonderful thing to think about um, how many people have been touched by this simple virtual town hall of sorts. So welcome tonight. And I hope that, that you, if you're joining us for the first time, um, enjoy the, the conversation and the inspiration that always is a fruit of this time together. Now, as we move tonight um, and every Thursday evening during this council time, when you have a question or a comment, you have an open invitation to press 1 on your telephone keypad. If you're Skyping in, you just use your Skype keypad for that. You can also access the archives of those um, four, almost four dozen people that we've talked to over the past two years, including Arun Gandhi, Kay Pranis, Dr. Carl Stouffer, and uh, Dominic Barter of Restorative Circle. So many incredible people working in their own way on the ground, so devoted to the incredible transformation that we're amidst in justice in our world. And then it seems especially poignant here in the United States. You can go to dopeace.us, that's D-O-P-E-A-C-E dot U-S, to access all the archives for this series and to also find out about future scheduling. We have a really robust schedule for, for this upcoming uh, late winter, early spring, including a recent uh, agreement from Representative Pete Lee of Colorado to join us uh, when the session closes this spring. He'll be with us, and next week we'll be talking with um, Indigenous Elder Sequoia Trueblood, and the following week, Jesse Lava of Beyond Bars. So and just invite you to check out the website, dopeace.us, 
for archives and further information about this series. So without further ado, I'd like to begin tonight's council with a very special dedication. And that dedication is to Steve, to Steve, Steve Leone. Steve is the brother of our ex extraordinary guest tonight. And he was killed almost to the day a decade ago, a senseless murder that happened on uh, February 12th of 2003. So this council tonight is dedicated to the life of Steve Leone and just giving thanks to our very special guest, Therese Leone Bartholomew, for being with us tonight. I'd like to share with you just a little bit about her um, she shares that it was her brother's 2003 murder that drastically changed her path. She was a former high school dropout and teen mother. She's now a filmmaker, a very inspirational speaker who's been featured in mainstream media, and she's also a restorative justice educator. She is the founder of the Restorative Justice Initiative, and we'll be hearing, I'm sure, a lot more about that tonight with Therese. She also is a writer. She uses creativity to support um, inmates and uh, works with, with female inmates and others in doing therapeutic writing workshops. She's the author of Coffee Shop God, which is a collection of essays and details of her struggle to adjust in the weeks and months following Steve's untimely death. Sister Helen Prejean, author, of course, of Dead Man Walking, calls the final gift the film and documentary film that she directed that is so moving. Um, Sister Helen calls it a remarkable journey, intimate in the telling, honest and brave and true. And if you haven't yet had a chance to peek at even just a, a film clip of it or um, see anything on YouTube, there's quite a few clips of, of Therese speaking online, please go to the website, which is the Final Gift Movie. That's The Final Gift Movie, and I believe, let's see here, it's dot, uh, dot com. That's right, The Final Gift Film. Excuse me, The Final Gift Film dot com. So we're going to open up tonight um, again with great thanks to you, Therese. Welcome. Thank you so much, Molly, for having me. I'm incredibly grateful, especially for that wonderful dedication that you did. Um, it's um, you know just very, it, it's just very moving, and it's it's perfect to me to hear that, knowing that my brother is really ultimately the one who has driven me down this path. <laughs> well, it's so interesting too that um, it it really turned your life in a whole different direction, and I. Um, of course, I was sharing with you in the green room <laughs> that I purposefully waited to watch the the copy, the DVD of the final gift today, and had many tears and was so moved by your courage and by oh, what you were able to create out of this very tragic event and loss. And I wondered if, if maybe you might start out a little bit with. Um, some of what you'd like to share about that that turning point, um, anything about that moment um, when you got the call and what occurred for you um, in the time thereafter? Well, I think 
um, to kind of set it all up, the best thing to say is that um, my younger brother, Steve, um, was my closest friend in the world. So he wasn't only my brother, he was my friend. Um, he and I um, were two years apart, and from the time he was a baby, I was, you know, I was kind of in the mindset that this is my kid, <laughs> and so I kind of had to fight, fight my mom for that. Um, but I, you know, our relationship just grew into a very, very close relationship in which, you know, he became like a father figure to my two children, um, and he was just there. He defined much of who I am today. Um, and so to lose him, you know, we got the phone call. Um, it was February 12th of 2003, and we get this middle-of-the-night phone call um, that just destroyed our lives. Um, I was in a new marriage. I had um, gotten married three months before that, and my um, new husband had four small children. The youngest was three. Um, and so we had a splendid family of a total of six kids. <laughs> and um, my two kids were in high school. And, you know, we got this phone call that we never expected. Um, my brother had been out of town business and had gone to a club and got into an altercation, a verbal altercation with someone at the club. And that turned into this, this young man, Carl, um, pulling a gun and, and shooting him right there on the scene. Um, and so our worlds were completely rocked. Um, you know, my poor husband is looking at me, I'm sure, thinking, oh, my gosh, we've been married for three months, and this is what I'm getting. Um, I was just incredibly grief-stricken and depressed and could not get out of bed um, just really could not move. I could not fathom how my life would be complete without this person in it. Um, and then we, you know, we had to deal with all the family. So my husband and I had to go and, and tell my parents what happened. And my children were at um, at their um, father's house, and I had to call there and get them. And you know, we had to deliver the news, which in some way made it even worse because it was like I, I knew that these people would remember me as being the person who delivered this horrible news. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we, you know, we spent about a year really floundering around. Um, I was a high school teacher at the time. I had just gotten my degree and finally finished college and um, had become a, a high school teacher and had been teaching only for a couple of years when this happened. And um, I was just so affected that I could not go in to work. Um, I tried to go back, and you know, I taught for about a week or two weeks uh, after he was killed, and just could not be present there. And um, so I ended up leaving teaching, and I really just stayed at home. You know, that's just the honest truth. I did not leave the house if I didn't have to. Um, and I really abandoned my kids, um, my two then teenage children who, again, were very, very close to their to their uncle. Um, I really abandoned them in that time um, because I just was not capable. I didn't really feel like I had anything to give, and I felt like just breathing was 
about what I could do, what I could manage. Um, and I remember saying to my husband at one point, within a couple of weeks after Steve's death, that, you know, I looked at him and I just said, I am not going to survive this. And, and of course, he's my new husband, and he looks at me and says, what does that mean? You're not going to survive. And I said, I really don't know what that means, but I'm telling you, I'm not going to survive this. And, you know, that's truly the way I felt, as if there was no way that my life could now move forward. Um, But what happened is, um, about three weeks after Steve was killed, um, I had to go to a bond hearing for the young man that, that killed him. And, you know, the first time I saw him, I felt like, wow, I could probably kill this person. I mean, I was very, I wouldn't say that I was angry, but I I was very protective. You know, I felt like that's what I was kind of supposed to do or supposed to feel. And so I felt this, you know, kind of instinctual, guttural feeling of I could really hurt this person. I could do damage here. Um, and within probably 10 minutes, um, sitting behind this young man, I started to feel differently. I started to look at him as a person. Um, he was 22 years old when he killed my brother. Um, and I was a high school teacher, so he wasn't far off in age from many of the students that I had. Um, I had always been drawn to students who had these very rich stories and who other teachers said, you know, you have that kid in your class, that's going to be terrible. You know, I would kind of cover my ears and say, no, 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 I don't want to hear it. <laughs> don't tell me. I want them to have a clean slate when they come to my class. Mm-hmm. And so here I'm sitting behind this young man who was potentially one of those kids. Um, and so it really struck me that he has a story and that he's a person. And what was his story like? Who was he? Who, who were his parents? What was his education like? You know, where did he grow up? What influences were there in his life, either negative or positive? I really started running through all this in my in my head, and and that caused a great deal of conflict because I I left there that day um, feeling almost as if that was a betrayal of my brother to see this person's humanity. Um, because certainly, if anyone, you know, people ask these questions all the time. Well, what would you do if such and such happened? Well, what would you do if so-and-so was killed? Well, then how would you act? Well, you know, I have to say that I never would have imagined myself responding the way I responded. Even though I'd had this, this sense of connection to people with difficult stories, I'd had, you know, I certainly had a heart for the underdog, so to speak. Um, And I've been raised in a very compassionate home. But I still, in a million years, would not have said, oh, if my brother's killed, then I'm going to want to understand the humanity behind the person that killed him. Now, I just never would have said that. So here I am having these feelings, and I I leave the courtroom that day, and I I call my husband, and, and I'm just weeping. And, you know, he says, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, I just, you know, I think I'm going to forgive him. And if I forgive him, does that mean that I don't love my brother? 
And mm. I'll never forget, you know, my husband said, I believe that means that you do love your brother. And so I spent about a year just in this state of conflict, of feeling really compelled to to see the humanity behind this person and to and to forgive. And it wasn't about what he could give me. It was about just forgiving and letting go of that in some way. And forgiveness to me was directly linked to just the humanity, just seeing his humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's so, so powerful, what, Therese, uh, if you don't mind me just just um sharing for a moment you you're to me um you are illuminating one of the the most common facets in this series and beyond in the contrast between um and the tension between uh okay well if i forgive this person does that mean i'm excusing what happened you know, um, the, the the restorative justice conversation right now in this country and beyond really is pinned, um, is is hinged, excuse me, on kind of this space of is restorative justice um, equivalent to forgiveness? Is it does it need forgiveness to be able to be possible? Um, and of course, we saw in recent mainstream media, along with with some of the spots that you've been doing, uh, another story um, regarding the the Anne Grossmere murder uh, that mm-hmm. was published in the New York Times magazine. And it started a flurry of conversations from a lot of different people in the field and beyond about um, the light that that story kind of shed on sort of the implication that forgiveness is necessary for restorative mm-hmm. justice. And I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? And how how do we work with that tension between, you know, oh, are we being light on crime? Are we excusing uh, what happened? How, how does restorative justice continue to grow and strengthen in the cultural understanding and paradigm? Because we know it is. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. But there is clear resistance to it, nonetheless. Could you speak to? I guess that's a couple things there to to chew yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, and, and and you know the idea of forgiveness. Well, first let me say this: we we had a, a university screening recently last week at Princeton. Um, well, we had a Princeton screening, and then we also had one at um, at UNC Wilmington, and the one at Wilmington in particular. A woman raised her hand, and she said, "She said this isn't really a question as much as it is a comment." And she said, "When people say that this is soft on crime, they need to see this <laughs> because that is not soft on crime. To sit with someone and to be accountable personally—this is, you know, this is an intrinsic thing. This isn't someone anyone can something anyone can put." onto you in any way. We can't make people be accountable, I mean, you know, in a very personal way. We can make people say, I'm sorry. You know, we can force people if we choose to. If that's what we choose to do, we can force that. But we can't make people see the humanity in another human being. And so what this woman said is so true that there is nothing further from the truth that it is not soft on crime to have to sit with a human being that you have damaged, that you have harmed, that you have hurt. That is not soft. That right. is a level of accountability that is not there in the majority 
of cases, Bingo. unfortunately. Right. You know, and so this is about accountability and an opportunity for accountability. You know, because a lot of times I think I believe that that offenders, that people in prison, I believe they want to be accountable, but there's no space. There's no space, and there certainly is not space for them to to come to a deeper level of understanding of themselves, of their actions, of the harm they've caused, you know, of what they can do different in the future. You know, I said to someone in one of the screenings last week that, you know, yeah, prison isn't where you go to figure out who you are. It's not where you go to get in touch with your feelings. So to have a piece that's there that allows some humanity in this system that, that you know, wonders why we have recidivism rates the way we do, you know, a system that creates inhumanity. You know, we're responsible for that. We as a society are responsible for that. So that's one piece of that. The other thing to me, and I, I say this repeatedly, and, and now especially since the New York Times piece, um, I, I kind of start off with restorative justice is not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not mm-hmm. restorative justice. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there is a space that's created mm-hmm. through many restorative justice practices, and not just victim-offender dialogue. We get stuck on victim-offender dialogue, and it's not just about that. There are many other practices that can take place within communities, within prisons, within schools. You know, there are so many other things we can be doing. And in my mind, this is just about humanness. This is about being human, one to the other. And frankly, it's about being smart, you know, if if what you're doing is not working, guess what? You need to change the plan, <laughs> you know, and what mm-hmm. we're doing is not working. Mm-hmm. So when I start off with this, you know, one of the things I say is that, you know, forgiveness is not restorative justice, restorative justice is not forgiveness. It allows the space that people might go that direction. But I had never heard the words restorative justice, you know, when I – forgave Carl, I forgave Carl because of me. You know, that's the bottom line. I needed to figure out who I was going to be, how I was going to recreate myself, and I gave him that. It was an unconditional offering, and and it wasn't even offering it to him. I didn't speak to him until many years later, so it really had nothing to do with him. And I, my personal belief, is that that's what forgiveness is about. It has nothing to do with um, going into some meeting with someone who's hurt you or hurt your family or hurt your property or whatever. It has nothing to do with that. In my opinion, forgiveness has to do with this unconditional thing that we offer up. Because, you know, rarely in my life have I experienced a human being that's hurt me that I could look at them and say, well, they genuinely deserve to be forgiven. Well, how do you know that? <laughs> you know, when are you happy enough? You know, when have they repented enough? When are they sorry enough? Does that even happen? So for me, forgiveness is a personal, a very, very personal choice, a personal journey. And for the majority, if, if not all, <laughs> of the, the other victim survivors that I have talked with about this exact same topic, it was about that, you know. It's about a personal mm-hmm. choice, um, and and you know, ultimately, I think that you know we cannot put all of our eggs in somebody else's basket. Mm-hmm. If I had 
waited for Coral to do enough or say enough, I would have been seriously disappointed. You know, that it, one of the things that a lot of audiences say when they see the film is, well, you know, why, you know, aren't you mad? Like when you forgave him, he's kind of like, oh, okay, whatever. You know, no, I wasn't mad because forgiveness really didn't have to do with him. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It had to do with me. And in my mind, all restorative justice did and all a victim of center dialogue did was allow me to sit in a room with him to have a moment, a four-and-a-half-hour moment of humanity, you know, to take this abstract, and, and let's face it, that's what our system does. It creates an abstract. You know, the offender, no matter what they've done, how big or how small, is kind of this monstrous figure, Mm-hmm. That, that's very real. I mean, it's a very real thing for victims to experience this sense of, of, you know, fear surrounding who this person is. But what if we break that down? <laughs> what if we which is which is what you have done so courageously. Um, this film, which I encourage all of you, if you haven't yet picked it up, um, at thefinalgiftfilm.com. It's an incredible documentary that really shows. Um, in all its vulnerability and honesty, uh, Teresa's process, and shows how how this all worked, too. Because a lot of times I think people just really need uh, a bit more understanding about what restorative justice entails. And I know certainly from um, the participant backgrounds on this series in this council that a lot of times we, we have a great number of newcomers to really what restorative justice is all about, as well as people who have been been with it for some time. So um, it's just so powerful the way that, I, I don't want to spoil the film certainly, but you're speaking a lot about um, seeing the humanity in another human being. And it, it's so um, profound, it seems, and it seems to be one of the um, the qualities that, is a foundation of what we might call restorative justice, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? That, that, that being willing, at least, to start to consider the humanity of, of the other, of the offender, is, uh, is a good, perhaps positive, um, start in the right direction towards, uh, towards a process, as you say, that is human and real. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's you know a huge part of this is that we have to have a willingness, and we're not always willing. You know, when when we look at a, an offender, most of us look at that offender and say, "Well, I would never do that. I would never be that." Well, that's not the way I look at people. I know that I'm capable of doing bad things. I know that I'm capable of hurting people. I know that I'm also capable of not doing those things. You know, I I understand that. I'm willing to see that part of myself, the part of self that that many of us are not willing to see. Now, I will say that now, since I've been involved in this movement, that I've met a lot of people, specifically victim survivors, that have that same mentality. And as soon as I communicate with them, I feel this sense of kinship. You know, it's like, wow, you're speaking my language. Like, you know, you get people. You get people in a, in a really deep way. You know, and I think that this is what, um, in my mind, says to me, we, we need to, this is about a cultural shift. This is about 
changing the way we view things. So this is about the way we raise our children. This is about the way we, we have uh, our education system set up. This is about a cultural shift so that it is a norm to understand other humanity. <laughs> you know, we are not constantly trying to create a barrier between us and the bad guy. We understand that we're capable of also being the bad guy, and we probably have been the bad guy. You know, maybe we just didn't get caught. Um, mm. So I think that I think that you know one of the things that I that I really really um, kind of harp on when I'm talking about restorative justice is it is completely about a willingness to see other. You know, in in quoting marks, other. It's about a willingness to see ourselves and other people, and I think that that you know one of the things that that Steve and you know you dedicated the show to Steve and I, I have to say that one of the things that really had an impact on me um, was that about I don't know a year and a half before Steve was killed he had gone on a camping and canoeing trip and he had taken um, his two kids and and um, my son and they got up to the mountains on this on this hiking trip this camping trip and they were going to spend a couple nights and uh, they ended up, while they were up there, they connected with this young man who was 12 years old, and he was in foster care. And this young man followed them all around. And my brother, you know, reached out to him and said, hey, you know, the kid said, do you, can I go canoeing with you? And my brother said, well, you need to talk to your parents. And he said, well, those, aren't, those are my foster parents. You know, they're not my real parents. And, you know, so he said, well, you have to check with them. You have to see if it's okay. And so he went and checked, and the parents gave permission, and so the kid kind of hung out with them really the whole weekend. And I'll never forget how profoundly my brother was affected by that child. You know, here he was, a single, you know, divorced parent, and he was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning to drive three hours to a hockey game and doing all those things with his own children. And he sees this child, and he calls me on his way back from this trip, and he says, I, you know, he's just, he's panicked. He's like, what can I do? What can I do for this kid? Can I be like a big brother? Can I, I'm going to call social services. You know, he needs attention. He needs somebody to pay, pay attention to him and, and um, show him his value. And, and this is my brother saying this. And so then here I am, a year and a half later, face this young man who killed him, who had been in the foster care system, um, who had experienced many, many very damaging things in his, you know, uh, early development. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so so really he was that same kid, potentially. Wow. And so Carl my brother had was, had a similar upbringing. The, the, the yeah. man who killed your brother was in foster yeah. care from, what, four years on, I think he says in the film, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Right. Yeah. So, so, here, so here I am, I'm faced with this. And, you know, I know my brother's heart. Now, my brother was not a perfect person. He, you know, is not going to be um, sainted or anything like that. But, but hmm. he was a really great guy. And he saw people. He saw beyond. You know, he saw people. He really saw people. And, and I believe that I have that ability too. And what I believe is that we all have it. We mm-hmm. just don't really want to do it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it's scary and it's a lot of work and people's lives are dirty and ugly and, and messy and we don't want to go into that and you touch on yeah. that in the film and I, 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 wanna, I just want to pause for a moment because we have more people joining us 
even now and welcome you if you're you're just joining us tonight. It's an honor um, to be speaking with Therese Bartholomew of The Final Gift. And please do, if you haven't already, checked out the website um, for that film, the documentary film, as well as for the Restorative Justice Initiative. And you also have a downloadable resource guide that you have available there, do you not, Therese? We do. Yes, a yes. study guide. For- mm-hmm. And um, so that, that website, again, is thefinalgiftfilm.com. That's thefinalgiftfilm.com. And you can also find Therese uh, and The Final Gift on Facebook as well as on Twitter. And um, you can sign up for her e-news as well. So welcome, everyone. And for this next half hour, um, again, a standing invitation to those of you who would like to make a comment or ask a question, get, get involved in the conversation tonight, you can do so by pressing 1 on your keypad at any time in the next 30 minutes. And so in this next next part of our call tonight, Therese, I'd love to um, to kind of weave in a little bit more about the kind of work that you're doing, but I'd like to start out with a question that was actually pre-submitted by one of the council members, and it concerns how did you, how were you able to initiate a process where you that ended up with you sitting across the table from your brother's killer? Well, I will give you the very, very short version of that. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> Because I think a, one of the things, a, Therese, that I, I think people are really hungry for is is information just like this. There's a mm-hmm. lot of conversations happening about how do we connect the so-called inside with the outside and so that there's there's a further conversation that can happen um, with the, the system itself that's already in motion. Well, so one of the things I'll say to that before I respond to my part of that, that question is, you know, one of the things I think that people need to do if they're interested in going through this process or, or at least attempting to is, is contacting, you know, uh, the people who work for Department of Corrections and saying, I want to, to have this process available. I want to do this. How can I get in? Who can I talk to? Um, and what they might do is they may very well run into walls and barriers, and, and they likely will in many places still across the country. But I think that if we all are pushing this, that people are going to have to listen. You know, this is why things start to happen is because when you get 10 calls in a day of people saying, hey, you know, I've been hurt by this crime. I want to meet with the person who hurt me. Well, when we keep getting those over and over, we're putting a little pressure. And and I think that's much needed. I think people should not be afraid to do that. Um, So from my personal experience, I I will give you the abbreviated version because there is a seven-year documentary that's out there that that really follows the whole path. But, um, yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll say is, you know, be ready for barriers because we're still not in a culture that understands this. The way people see this, and I certainly face this myself, is, um, you know, it's kind of a view of, of a certain type of victim. You're a certain type of victim if you want to do this. Well, you know what, everybody is a certain type of victim because we're all people, so we all have certain needs that are being met or not being met, and I would say vastly not being met. But what happens is that 
the, these systems in place, many times the people who are supposedly standing on our behalf, speaking for us, not, not really to us, but for us, uh, many times these people create the barriers because of fear. You know, this fear of, you know, well, are we pushing people to forgive? Are we trying to make people forgive other people? Are we saying that it doesn't matter what you've done? And, and it's about explaining to these people it's not, that's not what this is about. That's not what restorative justice is about. In my mind, it's about creating a space. So if that's what we're focused on and we're focused on meeting the needs of victims, then people need to start listening to that. So what I faced, um, the first couple of calls that I made um, were pretty early on. It had probably been you know, a year and a half, two years. I started making some calls just to see what, what I was going to get. And I called the Department of Corrections and I called a victim services organization and, and these people would say to me things like, well, sweetie, you don't want that. That's not what you want. You don't want to do that. Why would you want to do that? You know, so what you get are these very well-meaning people that are protecting you, but you don't want to be protected. <laughs> You've already been hurt, so you don't need their protection. You need to, to have some satisfaction come to you. And these people are not many times equipped to handle that kind of request. Um, and, and I think it's more equipped like a cultural, like a climate kind of thing. They're not equipped for it. It's not about are they equipped for it like the man hours, because I think if we work wisely, we will not put more man hours on our system. We'll put it in our community. We'll say, hey, we're going to involve our community in what's happening, so we'll let them be the resource for this. Well, so I was met with numerous people saying that to me. And it was so frustrating. And what these people do not understand is that that really creates a re-victimization. Because, you know, what I'm saying is I need this, and you're saying, no, you don't. You don't know what you need. I know what you need because I'm a victim advocate or because I work for Department of Corrections and I deal with these people every day. You know, so you face a lot of that. So for me, it took several years to connect with all the right people. And you have to remember that not only was I trying to meet the man who killed my brother, I was also trying to film that. And I was trying to put that out in a documentary. So there was a, a whole different level of, of stuff that went along with that and a whole different complication that went along with the film, which I completely did to myself and I would not recommend for any other human being. But, you know, I created barriers that weren't there. But the barriers that I did see were those barriers of you don't want that, you don't need that, why would you want to do that, um, we don't have the resources for that, we don't have the training for that. Um, so I was met with a lot of that. Uh, what ultimately happened is timing, you know, everything just fell into place. I call it a God thing. Some people call it a universe thing, whatever you call it. But everything fell into place. And so right about the time that I was really ready, that I really knew I was ready to meet Carl, I had gotten many things in my life straightened out. We had this film project going. This was really the last piece you know, of the film project. I just happened to contact someone who put me in, uh, in contact with someone else. And you know, I went kind of up the ladder until I reached someone who was a victim advocate. Um, her name is Veronica um, Swain Coons, 
she works for South Carolina Victims Assistance Network. And um, I was not a South Carolina resident, but my brother was killed in South Carolina, so I had to go through their system. So I just so happened to contact her. And they had just had the training to be able to do these victim-centered dialogues. They, their plan was really to focus on juvenile stuff, but they were willing to do adult violent crime. And so Veronica and I had numerous conversations, and in not one of those conversations did she say to me, you don't need that, you don't want that. She just said, let me figure out how I can get what you need. Let me figure it out. I don't know what this is going to mean. We just had this training. Let me talk to this person. Um, let me talk to that person. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's start the process. Um, so I was very fortunate. Um, you know, even though they had not had a victim of center dialogue in the adult system in a violent crime in South Carolina, they had not had that. Um, you know, they were willing, and they listened to me. And, you know, interestingly, Veronica wanted to connect me because she was in, uh, she did not work for Department of Corrections. She worked for, you know, a nonprofit agency that was a victim's advocacy group. Um, so she worked for this agency, but she wanted to connect me with somebody in Department of Corrections who worked with victims. And I went and met with, with uh, Barbara Grissom, who was the director of victim services at that time in South Carolina. And even though she'd never done anything like this, and she'd been in Department of Corrections for, you know, 30 years, she became my advocate, you know. So I don't know if the stars aligned. Wow. <laughs> I don't know what happened. But I was very fortunate. Now, I fought an uphill battle to get there, um, you know, trying to figure out who the right person to talk to and, who, you know, who do I approach without making somebody mad. And, and that's a horrible situation. I mean, to be you're already victimized. You know, you've been victimized by this violent crime then you're victimized by a system that doesn't hear you and doesn't see you, doesn't see you when you're in a courtroom, doesn't hear you, doesn't meet your needs other than having a victim advocate that brings you some tissue to blow your nose in if you cry. You know, I mean, that's mm -hmm. the extent of what's happening. And so then you fight this battle and you try to connect all the right dots to get into the system. And, you know, I was fortunate. I was fortunate. I know that after I had uh, my meeting with Carl that uh, Veronica did facilitate another meeting. Uh, it was probably about a year after. Um, so it was another adult system violent crime. So now those doors have been opened. In South and your, yours was the first, wasn't it, in the state of South it, Carolina? Mom was, yeah, mine was the first in the adult system in South ever. Carolina. First ever. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, so, and, and, and so again... I mean, we had a, an additional, you know, an additional challenge to getting cameras in and doing this whole film thing. This was a disaster. But, you know, to get in, it, it, the timing was just right. And I believe, I truly believe in my heart that if this is what people want, then we need to stand up. We need to stand up for one another, and we need to stand up when somebody says, honey, that's not what you want. And we need to say, I don't need you to tell me what I want. This is a need that I need to be met. And you're the people who are supposed to be serving me. I want you to serve me. <laughs> mm. You know, I think that's what it comes down to. We have to stand up and we have to shift this culture. You know, even in, like I said, victim advocacy, you know, 
we cannot have people that are speaking on our behalf as victims. You know, we have to have a voice. Right, and and in in the film, there's a very poignant discussion and um, that I'd, I'd like to just touch on before we go into a little bit more about the restorative justice initiative and the work that you're doing with inmates, um, which is rather profound. So, but but the the discussion or the topic point that was brought up um, ties into this, and it was from I believe William Early uh, brought it up in the film. Um, from Prison Fellowship International, and he says, uh, un- it's not a quote that I'm saying here, but um, he speaks to to the fact that basically we're looking at a life without resolution for both the victim and the offender. So it's it's a, there's a very similar characteristics that I'm hearing from you tonight. That um, I wonder if if it's the same situation for for offenders and and not only for victim and offender but also for communities. And does that point back to what you were sharing about perhaps redistributing the resources um, back to communities? And in fact, the um, paradox is that in the 70s, we were at that point where there was a u- unanimous feel that we, were, we would be rolling, rolling back funding on prison, prisons and even perhaps closing them and redistributing resources back to communities. That's about the same time <laughs> that the prison industrial complex came into the picture in the Reagan era, I believe, and um, it kind of all went downhill from there. So, um, but but if you could just touch on for a moment that that parallel of a life without resolution, and maybe speak a little bit to some of the ways that um, you see restorative. Ju- I mean, you've you've been doing this beautifully tonight already, but um, just the similarities of, um, of, of the predicament of a victim and offender with the current system and um, a, a kind of a synopsis of, of where we might go from here. Um, I think you're, like I said, already speaking to it, so um, I just wanted to illuminate that, that uh, poignant similarity between you know what what are made out to be very um dichotomous um parties involved in in when a wound happens when crime happens well i i do think that um you know as as mark early says in the film you know the the victim many times becomes a victim forever and the offender you know stays an offender really and not necessarily because they're out actually actively offending but because they become so in that mindset, in that label, this is who I am. Um, in a lot of the work, it's, it's really funny because today, I was, I was at the jail today um, teaching a, a, a class of women, 24 women. And one of the things that I ended the class with was, you know, we were talking about relationships with other people and peer relationships are healthy and unhealthy and, and how do we choose better and those kinds of things. And we were talking about that and, and I said, you know, what we all need to understand is that none of us are defined by one action. You know, we may have people that try to define us by that, but we need to remember within our heart, within our soul, within our mind, we need to remember that that's not who we are. We're not that action. We're not the orange jumpsuit. That's not who we are. It is about, again, maintaining 
that dignity of just being human, <laughs> you know. Um, and of course, our, our prison system is not set up to do that, obviously. But, you know, what I think restorative justice can come in and offer is an opportunity for victims to come out of that place of feeling like a victim. You know, as I said, and I know that many other people have experienced this, when you go into a system and you say, here's what I need, you know, I, I remember even even something simple as going to court and telling the police officer, you know, after the um, bond hearing, I told the detective who had met our family the night that Steve was killed, you know, I said, I really want to go to the place that he was killed. I really need to go there. Mm-hmm. And he said, I don't think you want to do that. <laughs> and I said, and he was a sweet, very, very nice, incredibly nice man. You know, he had been very, very compassionate towards my family. He was trying to protect me, you know. But I said, no, I need that. And either you're going to take me there or I'm going to drive there myself. That's what I need for whatever yeah. reason. I don't, need to, I don't need to put flowers there. I don't need to hang out there for a long time. But I need to go to the space that my brother was killed. And he took me there. <laughs> You know, but and I hate that sense of again revictimization because depending on who the person is, you maybe you'll fight that fight and maybe you won't. You know, and so right now our system is set up to label people forever. You're forever the victim. You're forever the offender. You know, and offenders, in in my mind, and having worked with offenders, you know, I think they're even more stuck in it. It's even harder for them to overcome because everything in our society says, you're not welcome back here, which is ludicrous. I mean, it's from a fiscally conservative person, from, you know, any, mm-hmm. any human being, this is a ludicrous thing to do. When you say and, and you say in the film, I just want to point out to people, you, you make a huge point in the film, you say... The question is, how will they come back? And you can't tell me that it doesn't affect everyone. So in how reentry occurs, how are people, you know, reentering, so to speak, and in, back into their lives and into society? Right. I think that's a huge point. I think that's a huge foundation of, of this whole conversation. It is because we have to, you know, when people talk about, oh, this is socked on crime, this is just a bunch of liberal hippies sitting around singing Kumbaya, it is not. This is smart. <laughs> right. This is smart justice. I mean, I have a master's in criminal justice. I've studied the system a tiny bit. You know, I know what we're doing, and I know right. that it's not working. You know, so we have to we have to shift this. We have to create a shift. I think that victims are really, really central to this. They really are central, you know, right. to, to creating that shift. And and you know, this idea of people coming out of prison and facing barrier after barrier, barriers in employment, barriers in in education, barriers in getting um, you know housing, all of these barriers. What do we expect? Do we expect mm-hmm. those people to come out and be successful? You know, that is ridiculous. 
Well, and your husband said something so profound, too, in the film. Again, um, Doug said something to the effect that they're basically put in a cage and prodded with a stick every now and then. And then, then we expect there to be a successful and low recidivism and to for there to be a fulfillment of what they say they're doing in um, rehabilitating and treating people so that they can then reenter. Right, and then we're, and, and one of the things my husband says in the film, and he's spot on, is that, you know, we're teaching our children this. We're teaching our children this is okay. You know, right. we're teaching our children not to see the humanity of certain people because they've done certain things. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying let's open up the gates and let everybody run free. That is hardly what I'm saying. But while people are incarcerated, why don't we do things that are going to help them to be better citizens when they come out? Why don't we remove the label and why don't we let them back into our world? They're coming back in regardless, you know, but how do we want them to come back in? Do we want them to be angrier? You know, do we want them to be less prepared? Do we want them to be more isolated? What do we want? This is a problem for every person who's walking this earth. This is not just a problem for me because I've been, quote, victimized. It's not. Because well, we're and all anyone who's walked into a prison, if you've been a visitor um, or just even near or in a lobby of a prison even, there is that sense of sadness and shame and fear. It's in the air. It's almost tangible. Um, it's, it's very much present. Uh, I'd like to pause for just a moment because we do have a few hands up. So let's, let's take a couple comments or questions from our live council. Go ahead, Dan. Welcome. You are live. Thanks, thanks, Molly. Thanks to both of you. Um, I just wanted to mostly express appreciation. And uh, this is Dan Kahn, and, and I'm a, an incoming staff member on the Peace Alliance staff. Um, I'm getting warmed up and uh, starting up my my work as a national field director. And uh, I just want to say that I, I I'm looking forward to seeing the film, and I find you to be a, a very compelling and powerful spokesperson. And I hope we have a chance to cooperate in the future as we work to promote restorative justice. Mm, thank, well, thank you, you Dan. So much, Dan. I, Go yeah, ahead, that's I hope that we get a chance to work together too. I think that's one of the things my husband and I are so focused on right now is is really meeting people who are like minded and creating that shift. It's you know we we have to do this. We do not have a choice. You know it's. If, if we can't see the humanity behind bars, then let's at least understand the kind of damage that we're putting back out into our world. You know, let's at least understand that we're standing up for victims if we're helping offenders be better. <laughs> That's standing up for victims. So, Dan, I hope that you and I will have many conversations in the future. <laughs> Sounds great. Let's do it. I, I just also would like to acknowledge Dan for his incredible commitment to the National Peace Alliance and beyond and the work that he's done as well in restorative practices in Florida. So I'm so grateful for your presence here with us tonight, Dan. And and so we're really almost wrapping up and time has really flown by tonight, Therese. And I, again, you know, if there's further questions and comments, don't forget to press one on your keypad. But um, we haven't really gotten a chance to talk about uh, a couple specifics around 
the work that you're doing with inmates, and then also a li- just a little bit more about the restorative justice initiative. And just as I'm saying this, um, field another question, and then we'll go into that for closing tonight. Okay. Robert, welcome. You're live. Hi, thanks. I just want to say um, how amazing uh, Therese is and how we need people like her to um, use as a a beacon of of how we need to react and how we need to deal with um, crime. I'm an attorney and I'm also a psychologist, and one of the things she spoke about is so true, and that is the helplessness that a victim feels and the disempowerment that the legal system and how it addresses crime so that if a person commits a crime and they get a plea deal, often what happens is it goes very quickly. Uh, The client uh, leaves the courtroom and often he'll ask me what just happened in there. So he never sees the personal consequences that his actions have on, on the victim nor does the victim have the opportunity to heal because it's so it's so divisive and it's so um, you know a helpless way of of teaching people adults and um, fam- and families and children about dealing with conflict in general. Like I really think we've lost our way to have an authentic dialogue because we really have fallen. Um, to uh, rely on others to resolve our disputes. And I think Therese is just, I've seen the documentary, and it's so amazing because she seems anything but soft on crime, but really a great, um, strong woman that uh, I think takes so much courage to be able to face the person who killed her brother is much tougher on crime than it is soft. And I think that... uh, She's a true inspiration, and I'm, I'm looking forward to working with her. Well, let me just in full disclosure tell you all this. This is so incredible because one of the amazing people that I've met over the past even couple of weeks is, is Robert, Robert Goldman. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of, of the story, but It's No Room for Vengeance um, is the, the name of the book that he has written along with this incredible woman, Victoria Rubelo. Um And Robert is doing a lot of work um, in the school systems, and it's about character. And he and I hit it off immediately because, again, it's this like-mindedness of this is about a cultural shift. One of the things that I think that, you know, I constantly say when people, when I go to speak and people raise their hand, especially young people, and say, well, I could never do that. I could never do what you've done. I could never sit with that person. and I could never forgive. I could never whatever. And one of the things I say is that's kind of the whole point. That's the whole point of restorative justice. That's the whole point of the film that we've made is that I am just a regular person. It, it turns into... Um, you know, forgiveness, restorative justice, you know, these meetings, this turns into something that seems very inaccessible to people. And it's not, you know, it's, it's about just being human and being willing to see our own, you know, damage, our own flaws, our own brokenness. And then we can see that in other people and we can forgive it, we can be compassionate, we can sit across the table from them. And even if we don't forgive them in the way that traditionally people think of forgiveness, 
we have come to a human connection to a moment that is very special that people don't get. You know, so I'm I'm just very um, <clears throat> almost defensive about <clears throat> the fact that these are these are characteristics that should be accessible, and if we teach them to young people, they will be accessible. Forgiving someone will not be a big deal. <laughs> mm. It won't create a conflict. Mm. Well, I just uh, there's there's just so much to this tonight, and. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering if we could take a few more minutes because there are more questions, Therese, but I want to be respectful of everybody's time tonight. But I also, it's just so important to allow for the conversation to happen. Um, I'm going to go ahead and, and open up the mic again here. Lorraine, welcome. You're live. Hi. <clears throat> and and I also call myself Lori, um, and I'm part of the Peace Alliance here in uh, California, uh, so it's wonderful to hear about the activities uh, um, in in D.C. with the the new field director. Um, I wanted to comment on the point that Therese has been making, and at the beginning she talked about something that is about it's not it's not forgiveness or giving approval to the action it is discovering a space that does exist in us and um as she talked o- over the hour it it's a it's such an elusive idea <laughs> and it is the core of restorative justice. So I just wanted to talk again about the process opens a space and it's just about being willing to go there or find your way there. Mm-hmm. Right, it, it, you're exactly right. And I think that that's the whole, that is the core and that's the thing that we need to try to explain to people who don't understand what restorative justice is, is that this is really about creating a space, a space for accountability to happen, a space for personal reflection to happen, a space for growth to happen, a spiritual space. You know, it is potentially a space for forgiveness, but maybe not. You know, I mean, and that, again, I think that depends on how people define the forgiveness. Hmm. Therese, in closing tonight, I just want to hear from you anything you'd like to share regarding resources, whether virtual or otherwise, or ones that you might be offering in the upcoming months, workshops. Um, I know that I think you said you're working on another film. So just just take a moment in closing here tonight um, to share with us some, some of what you're up to and anything you'd like to share about available resources, especially for victims in the way of um, restorative justice and and exploring how it might work for them? Well, as far as um, resources, one of the things that... um, Besides this amazing film. (laughs) Yeah. And and what you provide on your website. (laughs) Well, and and there's a robust robust library there. (laughs) Yes, and and so I would really encourage people to look there because I do have other um, uh, information there, but... 
a couple of, of different things that I want to point out is that one of the things my husband and I decided with this film is that, okay, you know, we finish it, and so now what do we do? So how do we get into action? Because I, my belief is that with, specifically with the documentary, is there's, there's a purpose and there's a point to that. There, there is an action plan. There's something that needs to take place after the film. And so what we're trying to do is, through this restorative justice initiative, is to, number one, educate people about restorative justice and about the personal journey of restorative justice, what it has done, how it has transformed our lives and the lives of so many people that we have now connected with. Um, we also are using the film um, as an accountability tool. So taking the film into um, prisons, taking the film into um, universities, to, um, to schools, and saying, hey, let's, let's look at what the consequences of our actions, let's look at that, let's look at um, how our faith influences what we do, let's look at how our, um, you know, how our, our environment, how we're raised, how that influences what we do, and let's look at the impact of the things that we do, the crimes that we commit, or the things that we wouldn't necessarily call a crime. Now let's just look within ourselves. Um, so we're using the film for that. Um, the third thing that we're really doing with this restorative justice initiative is trying to pull together victim survivors. And one of the things that I've just done recently, this past week actually, and we've been in talks about this for some time, but I connected with a woman by the name of Margo. Um, Margot Van, I think her last name is pronounced Van Sleitman. Um, she is an incredible woman with a beautiful story. Um, and she is a victim survivor. And she's a person who sees themselves in others. And so I consider her a sister in this whole thing. And so she and I have created a website, a Facebook um, page, a group for victim survivors who are encouraged by restorative justice, who maybe haven't gotten to experience it in any way, but who want to in, in whatever way that might be for them. Um, mm -hmm. So we've created this space. And when we use the word victim, you know, we both determine that we want to be very inclusive with that word. So anyone who's been impacted by crime. So maybe it's someone who has a loved one in prison who just wants a safe place to go with people that are like-minded, who are going to be encouraging and supportive. Um, so that's one of the things we've done just this past week that I'm really excited about. And, um, and, and how do people wanted, join? Well, we've created this group as a closed group. So if anyone contacts me through the final gift, I will absolutely add them to the group. We okay. created it as closed just because we don't want organizations to, you know, kind of get sure. in there and, you know, try to recruit victims for whatever their purposes are. Right. We want it to be a space that's really safe for people to come no matter where they are in their journey. Um, and so we've just done that recently. Um, and then, like I said, we're, you know, my husband and I, with this initiative, are really trying to promote education. And, you know, in connecting with someone like Robert Goldman, you know, these, this is where we have to start. We have to start shifting the culture. We have to start, you know, letting people see that this is, accessible. This doesn't mean that you're an incredible human being because you're willing to go through this process. It means that we're all incredible human beings. It means that we're all capable of doing incredible things. So we have to get that. We have to, to have that message out there, especially to younger people 
coming up, you know. We can change the system that way. I believe that. Mm. It's about changing the climate, the way we view things. Well, and, and you've already begun that process. It's already in motion. And just acknowledging your your work and your courage as well as, I mean, really, there's profound pockets uh, all over this country and, of course, the world. In fact, New Zealand system uses community conferencing fully for their ju- juvenile justice programming. And uh, as it's pointed out in the film, the Gachacha courts in Rwanda uh, were imperfect, but yet they were one of the world's most incredible models after such violence occurred in that country. And so I just want to acknowledge you and really Steve in his spirit for um, the mystery that has compelled you and propelled you in your courage to move forward in the, the midst of, of, of your own um, struggles and grief and your willingness to be vulnerable, which is so moving about the film. And it really brings it home to, uh, to anyone who would watch it, um, myself included, this afternoon. So mm-hmm. I just, I just want to say, Therese, that um, it's been such a, an honor to be with you tonight. And I'm wondering if you might just share with us, how do people stay in touch with you and keep the connection moving um, if they would like to? I know through the website you do have a... Uh, a button where people who would like to invite you to speak or to do a film screening, they can do so there. Is there any other information you'd like to share with people tonight about how to stay in touch? Well, definitely um, come to our Facebook page, the Final Gift Film Facebook page. Um, Please be, I mean, that is where I have met so many incredible people. I could just list all these people. Um, But these amazing people with beautiful stories and and people who, who want to change things. It's just about mobilizing. How do we do that? What do we do? How are we in this together? And many times it's about supporting one another. So mm-hmm. I really would encourage people to come to the Facebook page. Um, certainly you can go to the website, and from the film website, um, you can actually you'll have my personal email address. You can definitely contact me there. Um, you know, One of the things that I'm really about right now is just supporting the movement as a whole. In, in ways that, that we can. Um, and I think that that has to be something that happens in this movement, is we have to learn that we all bring different things to the table, and we have to figure out a way to really use those things to benefit the movement as a whole. Because then that's where we're going to see the change. You know, that's where we're going to see the real stuff. Um, so I'd encourage people to get in touch with me that way and through the Facebook. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, it's just been a great honor to be with you, Therese, and with all of you participating in this this ongoing council tonight. And once again, in honor of the life of an ongoing life and spirit and inspiration of Steve Leone, we dedicate this hour tonight of restorative justice on the rise. On behalf of the Peace Alliance and uh, all those of you I know on this call and beyond who are working in your own ways towards that systemic whole and transformation, thank you for your participation. Please join us next week as we host Indigenous Elder Choctaw Sequoia Trueblood 
That's a reschedule from our month of honoring indigenous perspectives in restorative justice. And then uh, the following week, we'll be hosting um, Jesse Lava from Beyond Bars. Please also check back to the Do Peace website, dopeace.us. It's under maintenance today, but it'll be back up shortly, and it will have the audio MP3, which is freely accessible, as, as are all the archives of this series. That will be posted shortly. So once again, Therese, it's been an honor, and thank you, everyone. Good thank night. you so much for having me.